Oh, hello, Ian. <laughs> oh, okay. A very lively crowd today. I like that. Um, I'm, I'm filling in today, as you can tell by the fact that I'm not barefoot when we're outdoors. Uh, but today we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 11 to 15 this morning. Now, uh, just a quick reminder that Titus is a letter written from Paul to his beloved disciple, Titus. Someone he knew, someone he walked carefully alongside, someone he was close with, and, and he taught with a lot of effort and love. And these days, it's not very likely that we're writing long letters to, to someone we're trying to teach. But I think we have a lot of context for this sort of relationship around us. Maybe in our own lives, teaching someone younger or watching other people. Uh, Fourth of July, I don't know what you did, but I got together with a few of my, my close friends. And my buddy Tommy has two daughters, Sophia and Ellie. And Sophia's five years old. And I don't know what happened, but at one point, Sophia became very upset. And as kids sometimes do, Sophia started to throw a fit. And she was very big in showing how upset she was. And I got to watch Tommy sit down with her and talk very calmly. He didn't get angry with her. He didn't yell at her. He just talked very calmly and was like, hey, it's okay that you're upset, right? And she's, yes, it's okay that I'm upset. But, but he, like, talk, soothed her down. He said, okay, but what do we do when we're upset? And he walked her through it. And I think some of this is a model of Paul's relationship to Titus, this older person stepping in and going, hey, here's how we walk through life. Breathe for a second. And talking about some difficult topics, some sensitive topics. And this sort of loving, gentle instruction is what we're going to witness this morning in Titus chapter 2. Paul writing to his disciple Titus. And what's interesting is he's actually instructing him on instruction, which we'll talk about. He, he's teaching Titus, who's supposed to be leading some of God's people, in how to correct people, in how to obey, and how to pursue obedience. So let's see what he says. We're reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together before we open up this passage. Lord Jesus, we ask that your spirit would work through us, would guide us, would encourage us, would convict us where needed. God, I pray that your gospel and your mercy would be evident today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you a few questions this morning, and some of them you'll answer out loud. But this first one I'd ask that you not answer out loud. Um, otherwise, we may learn too much about each other. But, but not saying anything out loud, just think about this before we dive in. How do you feel when you get corrected? How do you feel when you get corrected? Being candid with you, sometimes being corrected can be really hard for me, as I imagine is true for a lot of us. I can get a little defensive. I have sort of like a flinching response of like, back off, I know what I'm doing, which, again, parents, you've seen this from your kids their whole lives, I'm sure, right? This moment of like, I know what I'm doing, even though clearly they do not, right? They know everything. Uh, I used to work in landscaping with my dad in the summers, and we had, we had the big like ride-on mowers with, with the bars instead of like a nice little steering wheel. 
And uh, we had a large field that he was teaching me how to mow. And I was like, yeah, I can do this, no problem, straight lines, whatever. And I did the whole field, and I was like, I just did that like a pro. And my dad starts stomping over to me, like, clearly very upset. And I already start getting defensive, right? And he's clearly going to correct me. I'm like, I did a great job. I did that field in, in like a, th a third less time than you would think. And he goes, yeah, that's the problem. And he, he pointed me to the turning spots. What happens if you, if you mow too quickly? There was, there was all these indents in the ground where the grass was torn up. I had turned too tightly and just eaten right into the ground. And so this guy's lawn had these beautiful straight lines and then a, a, a little round loop of dirt every couple feet. You know, sometimes we get really defensive when we get corrected or when we're instructed. Or maybe what's it like when we, we get corrected by the Bible or by a sermon, right? Let's say you, you come to church and Pastor Jeff's message hits a, a little too close to home. And you're like, did my wife call Jeff this week? You know, is someone spilling the family secrets, right? Or he talks about something you've been struggling with and you're just like sitting there like, cool, cool, cool. Or you're home reading the Bible and you come across a passage that just calls you out. And maybe, maybe you skip past it really quickly. You're just, just going to move along. Maybe you feel encouraged to do better or, or maybe we feel ashamed or stressed or just a little avoidant, like, ah, it's not going to change anyway. All right, I've already tried, whatever, let's just move on. This passage in Titus is inviting us to reconsider our relationship with holiness and with correction. There's actually an excitement in what's being offered to us, even though I think a lot of times we don't get excited about it. Because it's based in freedom. You have to understand there's this opportunity that Paul's reminding Titus of. He's talking to Titus about an end to spiritual slavery. He says that we should live good lives, not just because I said so, but because of our blessed hope in Jesus, who's coming back and who gave himself for us. Paul's saying, hey, Titus, we get to encourage people to be holy because Jesus has freed us, because Jesus has died for us and died to make us new people, to died to make us like him. He's died to redeem us from lawlessness. And we're seeing a lot of words in this passage that we don't use in everyday life, so I'm going to break down a few. And the first is this word, being redeemed from lawlessness. What does this mean? Think about it like redeeming a coupon. Um, I'm a sucker for a good rewards program. So even if it's terrible and it makes no mathematical sense, if you tell me you're giving me a star every time I spend a dollar and that a thousand stars get me 4% off in three years, I'm excited. We're going to spend a lot of money really fast. And my favorite coffee shop has a, a 10 purchase deal. So once you have 10 punches, if you can remember to bring them in, which I have ADHD, so I don't, you get a free drink. I've never seen this free drink in four or five years because, again, I don't keep those punches. But I go to Black River Roasters and I order my cafe au lait. And, I, and in theory, I redeem my coupon. And I hand in my punches in exchange for a free drink. I walk away with that. So if we've been redeemed from lawlessness, there's this idea that Jesus has walked away. He's paid for it, and he's walked away with the lawlessness. He's paid the price for us to be able to walk in freedom. Let him take it. And that's what we need to understand this morning as we talk about correction. That as we learn from Paul on how to pursue holier lives, we're not talking about guilt or, or shame or trying harder. We're talking about the fact that Jesus bought us into sweet, wonderful freedom. That he paid for it, and he's walking away with the slavery that we've been carrying to sin. It's been redeemed. 
And the first thing that we see is that we have freedom from sin. In verses 11 to 12, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So because of God's wonderful grace, we have been saved from lawlessness. And what we miss out on is that this old life, it was slavery. The Bible says that without Jesus, we are slaves to sin. We pursue our own selfish desires. We stay caught in this like futile way of living, in emptiness. We get caught in destructive cycles. You know, we like to think that we're the boss, but oftentimes we're trapped. What Paul is saying is, listen, because of Jesus, you're no longer trapped. Why are you staying stuck? I'll ask you another question, and this one you can answer out loud. What's your favorite f- food in the whole world? Just shout it out. Steak? Oh, a, a few steaks. Okay, anyone else? Okay, chocolate, a lot of chocolate. Mine is cereal, okay, which does not feel appropriate for a man my age. Probably I'm turning 30 this year. But at 30 years old, there is nothing you can put in front of me that's more delicious than a wonderful bowl of cereal. Cereal is just God's gift to mankind. It's delicious. It turns the milk cool colors, and then the milk tastes fantastic. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving, truly. But there's a weird thing about me that if I stay up past 10 p.m., there's a moment where I will absolutely be eating a bowl of cereal. Now, I'm usually in bed at 10 p.m. I'm, like, internally, I, I do not like nights. I'm, I'm up at 5. I go to bed by 10. But cereal was invented for 10.23 p.m., right? Something happens. It's after 10, and I'm just, I'm just sitting there going, should I? I probably shouldn't. It's too sugary. I really can't afford I'm going to do it. Yeah. You know, the, the more I eat that late-night cereal bowl, the more I crave a late-night cereal bowl. There's this thing that starts to happen in your body, right? Those of you with a sweet tooth, you know this, that the more you feed the beast, the hungrier that beast gets. Right, I'm just going to have a little brick of chocolate, and then the whole bar is gone. Once we start, we just keep going, we keep going. And every single night that I eat a bowl of cereal, I am much more likely the next night to eat a bowl of cereal. I I like to think I'm in control, but really, it's Captain Crunchy's boss. They've they've got me hook, line, and sinker. But our sin nature is just like that, that we think we're in charge. We think that we're making our own decisions. I'm, I'm living in freedom. I'm independent. But really, we're craving a thing and living in captivity to our craving. And what Paul's saying is, listen, that was the case. Before Jesus, you were just in captivity to your craving. You would just keep getting back on the cycle. But thanks to Jesus, we have freedom from sin. And if Jesus is just a get-out-of-jail-free card, and all you think is, oh, we have freedom from the punishment of sin, you're missing out on some of the best that Jesus has to offer us in this life. This is not just about us not getting punished for our sin. God's grace appeared in Christ Jesus, bringing us salvation and training us to renounce ungodliness, to get away from it and reject it, because we don't have to live in slavery anymore. I want you to think about this for a second, because we often have destructive habits. And it's funny to laugh when it's, you know, a bowl of cereal, although, frankly, post-pandemic and 20 pounds later, it's not funny to laugh at a bowl of cereal. But if for you the gospel is just about missing out on punishment, I wonder if you're letting yourself stay in a cycle that Jesus has opened a door to. You're saying, well, I'm trapped. There's no way out. But the door is wide open. You are not locked in. The cage is broken. 
Paul is excited about the freedom that we have from sin. And we just think, oh, we're being corrected. Here comes dad mad at me as I finish mowing the lawn. Now he's saying, what are, you, what are you doing? Staying stuck in this thing that you were freed from. And again, don't answer it out loud, but it's worth thinking about what patterns in your life just, just feel outside your control. How do you catch yourself making the same mistake over and over again? Hurting people in the same ways over and over again. Making a decision that five minutes later, you're like, that was not the great call, or over and over again. Is it forgiveness that you just haven't been able to offer because there's just so much hurt? Is it bitterness growing in your heart? Is it judgment? Is it the greed that we ignore whenever we read a Bible passage about wealth? What is it that for us is just uncomfortable and so we just move along? Jesus isn't just offering us forgiveness for that. He's offering us freedom from it, from getting stuck in it. He came to offer us the grace of freedom. And not just freedom from our sin, but freedom to good. Freedom to good works. Paul continues and says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, if Jesus has just been a get-out-of-jail-free card, then you're missing out on some of the best of what he has to offer. Because he died to free you from your sin, those destructive cycles you keep going back to, the ways we hurt others and the ways we disobey God. But more than that, he died to bring you freedom to do good. To live a good life, like capital G, good. You are free to do really good work for Jesus. And frankly, it takes freedom to do really good work. Because a lot of times when we do what Jesus is calling us to do, when we live our lives the way Jesus did, there's a tension around us. People suddenly don't agree with the decisions we're making. I mean, if you look at Jesus' life, there was a lot of disagreement with him pretty regularly. He needed to be free to do that good work. And he offers us the same freedom. Because suddenly you're free to care about the things that matter. You're free, instead of in the same old cycle, of wanting what you want, wanting what pleases the people around you, wanting what gets you power and fame. You're free to want what Jesus wants and to live a life that has real meaning and value. To serve others in a way that will really, truly bless them. To live in a life that constantly connects you to the love and grace of Jesus. You are free suddenly to pursue all that God has for you. And that's such a gift because if we believe in the God of the Bible, then we believe in a God who truly desires to give us every sort of good imaginable. This is where we get obedience wrong. We read the Bible and we think that God is often trying to restrict us. He's some maker who just puts on arbitrary rules to test us. And I get it. It's easy if we're not careful to read the Bible like a rule book. Let's consider some of the rules we find in Scripture. If you read Proverbs, it tells us a lot about who to spend time with. It tells us a lot about business decisions. It tells us about money and romantic relationships. If we read Leviticus, now, I historically thought Leviticus was very boring, but upon a second read-through last year, Leviticus is full of life and good instruction. 
filled with information and guidance on how we should engage our pursuit of finances, even down to how we treat immigrants. Leviticus talks about that. Specific instruction from God. Paul's letter to the Corinthians tells us how to love people. It gives us boundaries and relationships outside of marriage and, and how to care for our own bodies. There's guidance, and it's easy to each, read each of those parts of the Bible and go, there's more rules from God, more things I better obey, otherwise he's going to zap me with lightning. But really, our maker is cluing us in on what's good for us. And then in Christ Jesus, we're actually given freedom to pursue that good. We can pursue what is truly good for us. Jesus wants to make us zealous for good works. He's going to make us enjoy what is good for us. It's like a lot of us, we like to ignore recipes. And it usually results in burning things or overcooking things or things overflowing in the oven smoking. You can tell I have a lot of experience with ignoring recipes. Because I often just decide, I, I don't need it. I'll figure it out, you know. I'll, I'll just, I'll let the vibes guide me. You know, we'll see what happens. And what happens is often not great. <laughs> but our maker has given us a really good recipe for a great life the ingredients in the process, and so much of life he's saying, hey, do this. There's going to be just beauty and deliciousness on the other side. I'll ask you another question, but don't answer this one out loud. Would you say God wants us to be happy? I hear people all the time justifying whatever they do by saying, well, I'm sure God would want me to be happy. I think what Paul is saying is actually God wants us to be happy as we pursue all the good he has for us. He wants us to be zealous for good works. He wants us to be excited about the freedom and grace and goodness that Jesus has given us to do really good things. So it's not that God wants us to be miserable and to never have anything. What Jesus is offering is actually to change our hearts by making us happier in doing what is good than we could ever be in doing what is not good. We are going to reach a point where the goodness we are free to pursue in Jesus makes us happier than going our way ever could. A lot of times obedience is really just trusting that God is as good as he says he is. So when he says this isn't good for you, he's actually freeing you, not putting boundaries and walls. He's saying live in freedom. Don't do this thing that's harmful. We have been given freedom for good. A lot of you know I, I recently started grad school classes uh, and Tyler's already rolling his eyes because I feel like I frequently mention things I'm learning. And I, I really like, I'm studying counseling, and I love what I'm learning. So very often I get very excited, and I'm like, want to hear a thing about attachment theory? Which the answer is no, almost no one wants to. But what's really interesting as I study my, in my psych classes so often, and this, I'm in a secular program, this is like research and a lot of like backed by studies and years and years of understanding the human mind and, and the results of how we live in this world, over and over again, I go, y'all, the Bible could have told us this. Recently, we were talking about parenting and what good parenting looks like and like verifiable data that this specific model of parenting is the number one statistically best way to get good outcomes, good relationships with your kids. Kids are like self-reliant, but also like connected to the family and connected to other people, all these things. And 90% of it is like, yeah, literally, that's how God teaches us how to relate to our kids. And if we would trust him and do it that way now, but it's all of how God teaches us how to relate to our kids. A lot of us, we, we take one part and we're like, ah, this part, this is the part that matters. No, no, no. If you read scripture and know God's heart for how we live in community and how we live as a family, 
and know the heart of teaching and grace, all those things, all of that builds into actually best psychological outcomes. Imagine that. Imagine our maker teaching us how to live with one another. You don't even have to do the research. You can just pick up your Bible and verifiably it is what leads us to the most life. So we have freedom to do good. And finally, we have freedom to teach. And in verse 15, he says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Again, I said that we're going to explain a few words today. And and in this case, exhort and rebuke. We're going to be talking about those in a second. But let me just give you a little bit of context first. This last passage is an encouragement to teach others to obey within this freeing, life-giving instruction that Jesus has given us, right? But first, we have to have a, a frank conversation because this is exactly the sort of Bible passage that we sometimes love to misuse. We take it out of context, and we, we weaponize it to make ourselves be right. What do I mean? If, if we're not careful, we take a sentence from Scripture and use it to mean anything. And I always tell our students, no puzzle piece makes any sense until you have all the puzzle pieces. And every line from Scripture needs to be placed in its context. So first, I want to remind you that this passage is being written to Titus, who plays a very specific role in his local church and has been trusted by Paul to keep leading and teaching that church and putting people in places of authority. And Scripture says very clearly that not all of us are called to be teachers and should presume to be teachers, and that teachers will be held accountable for how they use their authority. So we need to be really careful when we read a passage written to a specific person and say, see, the Bible says I should let no one disregard me. Because that ends up with us arguing with Walmart cashiers about their political beliefs. Because this person should not be allowed to disregard me. No, we have to be very careful. But secondly, we're actually given more of an understanding when we look at the original language. Which, if you're multilingual at all, you understand that when things switch languages, direct translations do not work. I cannot tell you how many arguments we've had in my family, because I'm Brazilian, so my parents' first language was Portuguese, Mine was until I was four, and then it was English. And so in my head, growing up, I just translate whatever I would say to people in English, I then say in Portuguese. Well, there's certain things that have a lot more weight. Sarcasm looks really different. And so sarcasm that's really mild in English is actually really rude in Portuguese, which is what I found out after being corrected over and over again and getting in trouble a lot as a teenager. Humor, all these things. And so there's, there's little nuances here when we look at this language that, that really matter. So Paul's telling Titus to exhort and rebuke. Now already we're dealing with two words that we don't really use very often. So uh, a quick definition of exhort would be to encourage or to urge someone. Okay, encourage people. Say it with emphasis. And rebuking is, is sharp disapproval or criticism. So he's saying encourage and criticize people. That would be a quick, loosey-goosey modern translation. Uh, which some of us were like, oh, I can encourage, and some of us are like, oh, I can criticize, right? Or probably all of us in the right circumstance, we can criticize. But what's interesting is that in the original language, there's a little more meaning that we can miss out on, especially in the word exhort that Paul leads with. In the Greek, exhort has this connotation of closeness. It either means, depending on how you break it down, uh, this two suggestions of either you draw close to someone so you can correct them, or you correct them to draw them close. Like to bring them closer to you by correcting them. 
It's like if you're taking a hike with your kids or, frankly, with anyone with ADHD and we like to wander off, and you're like, uh, hey, you grab them by the arm and say, there's a cliff right there. You're going to fall off. Stay on the path. You're literally drawing them close. You're bringing them in. Exhorting has this connotation. And in fact, the word up close is part of the original language. And so a lot of times when we think of correcting people, we don't think of getting up close. Especially in this, this like digital age of correction, which usually means we're correcting people on Facebook or sending a quick text after a conflict. But what Paul is saying is get close. Get real close. And from there, encourage and correct people. If what you're doing could be seen as throwing stones from far away, it's not the biblical idea of exhorting and rebuking. We've been given freedom to teach, but we have to teach in ways that draw people close to the gospel, to the community God made them for. When I correct you with scripture, it should actually inspire you to get closer and not to run away. And that means I have to get close. Part of why this matters is because Jesus and the religious leaders of his time both exhorted and rebuked people. But look about the differences we see in scripture about how they did that. In Matthew 23, Jesus corrects the religious leaders very harshly and tells them that they love to rebuke people. He said that they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're just piling on the rocks from afar. He calls them hypocrites. But Jesus, on the other hand, sat with the woman at the well to ask her about her love life. He had dinner with Zacchaeus, who was a known bully and thief. He knelt down by the woman who was caught in adultery. All these people were drawn close. Jesus got close to them, and he drew them closer. And from closeness, they were corrected. It's not that he spent time with Zacchaeus and was like, Zacchaeus, you're a real swell guy. I don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus at that dinner, but he left making amends. We see that with each of those women, too, who spent time with him. They left, changed, different people, more obedient people, free people, because they were drawn close. Think about what a difference this would make in our lives if we would teach and encourage one another from a place of closeness instead of criticism and harshness. Think about this. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to be critical of parents, I feel like. And I, I've heard from so many parents that no one gets to say a word about parents until they have kids, right? Um, I see this a lot at stores, right? A kid's pitching a fit, and everyone's rolling their eyes at that child, right? Oh, if that were my kid, they wouldn't be screaming in the shop, right? I don't know about that, right? But what if instead of judging another parent, we stepped close to help them? What if we gave our time and our energy so that our parenting friends could, could get some rest? So we have more rested parents. And more rested parents are actually able to show up for their kids in way better ways than parents who are worn really thin all the time. As a single person, I, I try to be really aware of this. All right? I try to step in for my friends with kids as much as I can because I understand that I might be tired after you know building paper crowns for my nieces for three hours, but I get to go home and like it's quiet. It's nice. And my friends don't. They need the support. If you notice that when we baptize infants as a church, we actually agree as a community to help raise those kids in the faith. So we've actually taken vows. If you've been here for a baptism and you're a member of the church, you've taken vows to get real close in supporting those kids being raised. 
instead of in five years complaining about them when they're in Sunday school and, you know, I don't know what they do in Sunday school. Throwing bricks? I don't know. The, not bricks, sorry, the little uh, blocks. It's, it's actually on us. Like, we, we love to go, oh, that's, that's their, their parents' problem. Wow, those parents should really do something about that. Well, actually, according to the, the vows we make as a community and according to what Scripture says, we should do something. Like, we should step in. Hey, it looks like you could use a hand. It's easy, too, to judge other couples, right, to gossip or to make passing comments or just silently evaluate from afar. Again, I was, I was at a wedding on Monday night, and often at a wedding, and I noticed it this week, we agree as a community to support the couple. So when our married friends are having trouble, we don't get to just judge from afar. And frankly, we don't get to step in really late in the game. It's ours to step in, to get close, to teach, and to encourage. Hey, you seem like you're arguing a lot lately. Is, is everything okay? You seem really mad lately when I spend time with you. What's going on? And notice this isn't saying we don't correct. It's saying we correct from up close and personal so that we know what's going on. We know the situation. I've shared before that I have a, a tight circle of friends, guys I've known for years and who I consider my brothers. By the way, I, I hear some stories um, that a lot of y'all are confused about what my actual family situation is and whether or not I have siblings because I will simultaneously tell stories about my brothers and being an only child. Um, so just to clarify, I have some close friends who are my brothers. We have no blood. But, uh, and so we're, we're really close and we're really involved in each other's lives. And we consider each other family. And one of the things we've had to practice over the years is correcting and teaching in love and from up close. It's not that unusual for one of my sisters-in-law to reach out and say, hey, you need to talk to your buddy. Because I don't know what's going on with him, but he just seems really angry all the time. When I try to talk to him, it's just affecting our marriage. You need to talk to your buddy. And a lot of times there's just something going on that that, that friend just needs someone to step in. I wonder how much healthier our marriages could be if we felt we had that need for support, right, and we had access to it. But it's, it's often common for one of them to sit down with me. Hey, you don't seem like yourself lately. I'm worried about you because you did this, and this doesn't seem in line with who you're called to be in Jesus. What's going on? This correcting from up close that we do as a community for each other. It's so easy to judge from afar, but we've been given freedom to teach, to encourage, to correct to draw close and help people to find the way when they're stumbling. And frankly, this takes freedom in Jesus because this requires the Holy Spirit's deep, powerful love to do well. But when done with the Holy Spirit, correction can be a beautiful means of establishing connection, of bringing someone into the community they belong to. The fact that so few of us experience this as a sign we're get to, that we can be closer is actually a sign that we need to be sitting down daily and asking the Lord to give us strength and to help us love our neighbors and to help us love our church and to help us correct people in grace. Because what this all comes down to is our King Jesus who is coming back. Jesus who's made a way for us to live with him now, not just in heaven. Not a get out of jail free card, but a life lived in freedom, in grace, in community, in joy. Our communion with Jesus doesn't start in heaven or when he returns. It starts today, daily, experiencing his love and freedom and the gift of the resurrection, giving us freedom from sin, freedom to do good, and freedom to teach. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is only by your freedom 
that we can leave captivity. It's only by your freedom that we can live real, full lives, abundant lives. It's only by your freedom that we can lead others to that same grace and mercy. So Jesus, would you make us free? For those of us who know you, would you make that freedom more evident and real in our hearts? Would you help us to surrender? Would you help us to lay down our pride, lay down our criticism and our judgment? For those of us who don't know you, Jesus, I pray that you'd awaken in us a hunger for you, for that freedom and grace and mercy that only you can give us. Help us to be your love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please stand.